Each year, the California Lecture Series brings nationally renowned figures to Sacramento to talk about what they do and have done. On Wednesday, February 4th, Dr. Dean Adele comes to Sacramento. He's been called America's doctor, and with a practice, as it were, of millions of radio listeners, it's a title he's earned fairly. For decades, Dr. Dean's been offering opinions on health, medicine, and life that are firmly grounded in the medical literature. To prepare for his program, he combs 50 medical journals. Being informative is not necessarily the key to his success, however. It's Dean Adele's judgment, grounded as it is in his varied experiences and leavened with common sense, that keeps listeners coming back for his opinions and advice. While he's been ruthless in attacking practices he believes to be quackery, Dr. Dean Adele has never been shy about criticizing conventional medical wisdom. I don't mind saying that as a physician, I've gained a great deal of practical information over the years by listening. It's helped my patients and made me a better doc. I'm delighted to be able to say, as a colleague in medicine and radio, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Dean Adele. Hi, how are you? <laughs> well, sir, a lot of people associate you with San Francisco, having been broadcast from there for years, but they might be surprised to learn that you once lived in Sacramento and directed county alcohol and drug rehab services. Well, it's more than that, actually. I began my career in Sacramento, and not a lot of people, uh, not a, not a people know that. I, I had quit medicine. It's a sordid tale. You want to hear the story? Absolutely. Okay, I, I quit medicine in 1972. I practiced in a surgical subspecialty and, you know, just took some time off. You know what it's like going to medical school and internship and residency. You get on that train and you just never get off. So I was wandering around and I actually had an antique uh, art shop and a custom jewelry shop. That's what I kind of love to do. Right next to the Tower Theater, if you're looking at the Tower Theater, Oh, wow. On the right of it, now there's a restaurant there. There used to be a drugstore and a little teeny shop right next to the theater, and that was my shop. And uh, one day a woman gets off the bus, and she comes into my shop and said she worked in the what was then the drunk tank downtown, and they needed physicians. We had struck up a conversation about jewelry, actually, and she found out I still had a medical license, and she said, we need doctors to come down and help do physicals on our clients. I went down there, met a guy who said, you know, you're the first doctor I've met who speaks English, <laughs> and I got a friend of a friend of a friend who has a radio station, and it would be really cool if people could call up and ask a doctor any question they wanted. So that station uh, was uh, K-R-A-K, which I think still is a country music station in Sacramento. Uh-huh. And she put me on the air, cold turkey. And it was a frightening experience. And then from there, I, you know, here I am. I want to quote from Bertrand Russell. He said at one point, what is wanted is not the will to believe, but the will to find out, which is the exact opposite. It seems to me, Dr. Dean, that Russell might have been describing your approach to what experts say, because you regularly do battle with the quote, experts, unquote, in many areas to sort out what makes most sense. Yes, you know, that's a great quote. And of course, not just the experts, but as you know, there is just a huge resurgence of quackery and misinformation in this country, and people, quote, just believe. And I, I, I think that is the, that's the gist of it. If people would just take a more critical attitude and just not believe everybody who's trying to sell them an idea or a treatment, and listen, that includes us in medicine, you know, we have our soft spots, and I always want people to, uh, to que you know, question authority, uh, but understand the difference between somebody who's bringing some objectivity and science to the table versus somebody who's just trying to, you know, shroud some piece of junk in the mantle of science. 
and sell it to them with all the unrealistic expectations. So we are fairly gullible. It's somehow, and I, I don't have an answer for this, is why if I told you I have a pill you could put it in your gas tank, you'll get 100 miles to the gallon, you'd laugh at me. But if I told you I had a pill to make you live to be 100 years of age, most people go, well, hey, I'll try that. So what can I say? Well, you've been unsparingly critical of, of lots of different fads in, in medical treatments. So one that comes to my mind from a few years back was shark cartilage. It was decimating the world's shark populations and, and not really benefiting anyone. And fads in medicine are just a bad idea. Yes, it's, you know, and it was laughable then. It's so obvious because sharks, the book that put that up over the top, was sharks don't get cancer, and of course sharks do get cancer. <laughs> so you state an untruth in a book title, and then you try to tell people, wait, that's a lie. That, that's not true. And from there, of course, we've decimated the populations. And I think of all the poor people, you know, who tried this, who had cancer, and who lost the battle. And, of course, the perpetrators, they walk scot-free. It just doesn't seem we or Congress or anybody in this country cares about that aspect of health fraud. So it's up to the consumer uh, to think this through on themse for themselves. Shark cartilage is from the fringes of medicine, but uh, conventional medical wisdom in recent years has put maybe half of America's kids on medicines for ADD. You've, you've taken a very dim view of that practice. Yes, I, of course, that medication can really help some of these kids, but there's no way the percentages of American kids that are currently on medication have a, quote, real neurological problem. It is complex, the borderlines are soft, and there are a lot of experts who are very chagrined, chagrined by this, that, you know, America has decided the easiest way to deal with kids who may be different learners, who have different personalities, who are maybe bored with school or not behaving in a predetermined way, that these kids have a neurological illness that doesn't exist in Europe or Asia or other places. It just makes no sense, but it's an easy, expedient remedy uh, because we would much rather, you know, take a pill and do the hard work to find out what's going on with our child, what's going on with the school, the teacher, and our child's learning abilities. Because some of these kids are really smart and really clever, and I, I, I was one of them. And we, I think we often are drugging these kids into a sort of submission and robbing their creativity. And if you go back in history, you'll find a lot of people who are unmedicated, hyperactive, or ADD kids have made great genius contributions to our world, and there's a long list of them, and so I think we just have to be careful. I, I would just say to parents, you know, get the opinion of more than one person. You know, you walk in your pediatrician's office, and in a half an hour, your child's being prescribed Ritalin, and you've got to ask some questions. you got to ask a lot of questions. I think that's way, way too quick, and nobody can make an accurate diagnosis in that short amount of time. Well, and when it comes to adults, it seems we're also a nation of antidepressants, something else you've challenged. I, um, you know, and again, antidepressants have saved lives. It's just the wholesale overutilization uh, that I think irks me. And they work, but they work in only certain circumstances. They work better when combined with talk therapy. Uh, and once again, it's that magic, it's the pill fairy. It's the magic solution in the pill that we all fall for because. You know, the hard work in therapy to understand your depression and, and what the work that you can do to help yourself. Um, you know, we're lazy, we're busy, we're under a lot of pressure. So it's, it's always a mixed bag. And, of course, the pharmaceutical industry has come up with incredible miracles that we all benefit from. But it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, the, the ads you see on TV about prescription drugs are entirely true. And, of course, we are a pill-popping culture, so it plays into that weakness we have. 
You've, you've discussed alcohol use frequently on your program and in your books as well. Uh, it, it obviously has a lot of social problems around the world, but you've noted it also obviously has health benefits. You've entitled one of your books, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry. And a healthy attitude about moderate use seems to be a key, and that's, that's a fact that I think is lost on a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's lost, and even there are broader implications for it. Alcohol is a good example of a mood-altering chemical, a drug, as it were, that most people use and use to benefit. Um, some people abuse it. We don't make alcohol unavailable because some people abuse it. And, you know, this whole fiasco we have currently with trying to investigate whether indeed uh, marijuana has medical properties is so difficult because folks apply an inconsistent logic. Oh, because it's abusable, we therefore should not look for usable uh, functions in this interesting molecule. The same would go for opiates and heroin. Listen, you think about all the pain relief that comes from the use of opiates in medicine, and you use that same logic, we should not be using opiates in medicine because there are people out there who abuse opiates. You go to the dentist and get Novocaine. That original research is based on the cocaine molecule. So I think we have to understand every drug has good parts and has bad parts, and just because some people abuse a drug doesn't mean it can't be good. And, you know, we still have not officially made the recommendation that people should drink, uh, and I think the healthy recommendation is if you drink lightly or moderately, you have no reason to quit. Uh, we're not ready yet to tell people who uh, eschew alcohol to start taking up the habit. Uh, a lot of people say, hey, you tell people to drink, you're going to create more drunks. Well, that may be, but, you know, we can't stop progress and people who would benefit from a medication because some people would abuse it. Well, Dr. Dean, you've been ahead of the curve on, on many occasions. One that comes to mind was that uh, I remember you talking back in the 80s about our use of opiates and perhaps maybe not using them as, as much as we need to. Well, here in California, the restrictions on analgesics uh, got so bad that the state finally mandated continuing education for virtually all doctors to remind them of the obligation we have to limit suffering. So it must, it must feel very good for you to see that, you're, you know, when your perspective carries the day. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, you know, I have a different reaction, and you as a physician know this, that you could have opened up a medical journal 20, 30 years ago on any of these issues, and it was clear what science was saying. It, it, it's not hard at all. It's just the voice of the media is so loud and that it counters, you know, the voices of those who can see these trends and are trying to, and trying to help people. And, you know, back then, I, and I know and what you're saying is absolutely true, and people should know it's also it's required for your licensure renewal, et cetera, that you have, uh, you know, you, you've learned about, you know, how to relieve pain. And it was a complex deal because doctors felt guilty and were accused of addicting people, and we got afraid. You know, there was a time when uh, I remember once in that, that's that monthly bulletin we get from the medical board where, you know, it said that uh, if you are not careful, we'll be knocking on your door. And it just intimidated doctors when it came to using So um, it's been a long time in coming, and let's hope fewer people are suffering. Uh, but I, I would also just ask people to really think about who is telling them, you know, what they're hearing. You know, why is that person telling me that particular point of view? And you also, in media, as I am, understand the forces upon us to, you know, create audiences, to be entertaining, and talk shows and Oprah and all that the same way. Uh, they will take the more sensationalistic approach every time because it brings in viewers. 
and unfortunately, there's just too much information. One word from Oprah would take 10 years of public health officials to undo. You know, Oprah has a large burden on her back nowadays for all the misinformation that she has helped promulgate in terms of people not vaccinating their kids, women taking phony baloney, you know, herbs, and uh, it just, I could sit here all day long. And she is a huge force in our culture, but unfortunately, she never went to medical school and doesn't <laughs> listen to anybody who did. Well, I, I certainly have always appreciated uh, that how you take that responsibility of having that that uh, that large audience so seriously. Um, I, I pulled up Eat, Drink, and Be Merry off the shelf, and unfortunately wound up reading half of it last night all over again because <laughs> ah. I, I couldn't stop reading it. But uh, you noted at one point how you naively passed along some bad data in the case about the medicine Bendectin, which wound up getting taken off the market to the detriment of a lot of people, benefit of a few lawyers. And uh, that that's really a... Just a case in point. Yeah, it's a very good case in point. And that was actually when I began in Sacramento, like 30 years ago, and I allowed myself to be, uh, you know, to be swayed. And, well, listen, this is, uh, I've learned, as we all do, I make mistakes, we all do. I'm just not afraid of making mistakes. Uh, and I, I'm sure you're the same way. I learned from my mistakes. And this is, you know, the finest education. I realize I have probably had, and not because I went to a good medical school, but doing radio has probably had the finest medical education there is. Because if I say something, and anyone out there disagrees, and if I'm talking about brain tumors, there are neurosurgeons listening to the program, and believe me, they let you know immediately. And so it's like an instant feedback, uh, updating my knowledge about what's going on, because I just don't have the time to read every medical journal um, out there. So I would, uh, you know, I am always humbled by the times I've been, uh, I've been wrong. And listen, I'm humbled when I'm right, because it's not hard. I'm no, I'm no genius here. I just look at medical journals. I just look at the scientific information. And uh, it's all there. The truth, or as close as we can get, is found there, not on the talk shows or your local news. Well, when you got into radio, there really were no doctors in the airwaves, as you mentioned. Uh, but now you know there's, there's entire conventions for media doctors, media people. I'm, I'm quite curious about your reaction to the news that uh, neurosurgeon and media physician Sanjay Gupta has just been named Surgeon General. Yes, you know, I'm proud of that, considering, you know, I was one of the, one of the first media docs. I think I was the first doing radio. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, I got a lot of heat from media professionals and journalists because who's this guy walking in the back door? You know, I was fortunate. I was fortunate to uh, be able to be on television and on radio in major markets very early in my career, quote, without going to journalism school, not that most journalists on TV went to journalism school. I was fortunate, but there was a lot of resentment. There was resentment from the medical profession, to tell you the truth. They didn't like the idea that I was there expressing opinions and that occasionally those opinions would clash with their opinions. I remember early on in the estrogens, you know, I kept telling women 25 years ago, I don't know that we have the evidence that every woman when she reaches 51 should be put on estrogens, and there were some kind of colleges doing that automatic because the woman was 51. And that wasn't hard to figure out. Uh, so, you know, I, I, um, I just think uh, that it's great that a television doctor, quote, has been you know, recognized to be a high enough quality to take up the, uh, you know, the highest medical job in the, in the land. So I wish him a lot of luck. I don't imagine politics is like neurosurgery or politics is like working for CNN. And uh, uh, yet I think the skill level, the skills he brings to the job are probably very important. He knows how to work a camera, knows how to garner an audience, knows how to communicate. 
and, and knows how to deal with issues in you know concise and direct fashion. So uh, I, I, I think it was a good choice. Well, we're short on time, but I know the question of diets fascinates Americans, and uh, when all is said and done, your advice in this area is very straightforward and quite succinct. Could you give us your remarkably simple summary of really how one should approach diet? Yes, well, um, it's gotten simpler and simpler. Unfortunately, you can't write a book, you know, with one sentence. (laughs) And in one way, I tell people because everything else has failed. I mean, we have to admit that. The failure rate is 90-something percent, and if we in medicine did anything that failed at 90-something percent, or any industry did something that failed to that level, we would kind of throw up our hands. So I tell people to eat what they want. If they're not eating what they want, they're not going to stick to any diet. Dieting is a lifelong deal. So I tell people, eat less. I mean, it's so simple, and yet it's a lot easier than working out in the gym. It's a lot easier than, you know, mono diets and strict diets and feeling deprived all the time, but it's really easy to push away that last piece of pizza. It's really easy to say no to dessert, and I think people will wind up more satisfied and control their weight better. But that's my opinion, and it's a minority opinion, unfortunately. Well, I'd like to just close with some advice you gave at the end of Eat, Drink, and Be Merry is how we can all sort of simply avoid some behaviors that, that, uh, that are counterproductive, and maybe that's one of the really great keys to wellness. You were saying that if we just can control stress and anger and hostility, et cetera, that these are things we have control over, and they pay huge dividends. You know, life is, um, life is short, and I see we spend so much time worrying about the future and the past and we allow ourselves to get so stressed out. Now, this is easy for me to say, you know, um, you know, I'm not 25 anymore, and you do gain a little bit of wisdom about it, but it's the same consistent message. And uh, we Americans are so into numbers and worry about everything, and when it comes to uh, living life, you don't know, tomorrow you could get run over, so live it to the fullest every day. Say the things to your loved ones you want to, and, you know, it's, uh, no one's going to be on their deathbed and go, hey, I wish I spent another day at the office. <laughs> and unfortunately, too many of us have that, that attitude. So uh, life is very sweet to be enjoyed, can I say. We've been speaking with Dr. Dean Adele. His radio program is heard on hundreds of stations across the country and on satellite as well. Dr. Dean, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Absolutely. You too. You too. Good, good luck to you. Be well. Bye-bye. We only get one.